You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, we analyze all 43 years of Gundam, episode by episode, and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.5. This is not a place of honor. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and no highly esteemed podcasting deed is commemorated here. And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam, and this podcast is a warning about the dangers of SD Gundam. The danger is still present in your time, as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 602 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Jeanette B. and Gideon C. We are also grateful to those of you who are returning patrons or who recently increased your pledges. Did you know that MSB patrons get numerous benefits depending on their tier, including early episode releases, access to an exclusive Discord, bonus content, merch, and more? You can check out the whole list of perks by visiting gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. This week we're starting to cover SD Gundam Mark III, but there's a twist. To cover it in release order, we are going to have to cover it out of order. Mark III is composed of six shorts. Part 1, the Space Mystery Operation, and Part 2, the Ninja Battle of Zoom City, are both around 12 minutes long, the standard length for these kinds of shorts thus far. Parts 3 through 6 are each around 3 minutes, and put together they form a kind of set. All four of these micro-episodes are set in the SD Sengokuden Warring States universe, and their names follow a particular schema. Chi no Maki, Ten no Maki, Shin no Maki, and Ri no Maki. The no maki part in each title can be translated as chapter of. So these are the chapter of earth, chapter of heaven, chapter of truth, and chapter of reason. What complicates this further is that it seems that all six of the Mark III shorts were made and released prior to SD Gundam Mark III. But due to the specific circumstances of their release and the scant, conflicting information that I've found about them, I haven't been able to nail down exactly when. As you know, Bandai Visual's releases of SD Gundam for home video have been pretty expensive, with asking prices north of 7,000 yen, more than $100, per video. These were intended for video rental shops and big spending otaku, but eager to capitalize on SD Gundam's phenomenal popularity at the time, Bandai also re-released the already published shorts in a series of low-priced, great bargain, or Marutoku special videos at less than half the price of the originals. For reasons I don't entirely understand, the Marutoku videos reordered the shorts. So Marutoku special number one includes one short from SD Gundam Mark I, two from Mark II, and the first of the four micro-episodes from Mark III. Marutoku number two includes one from Mark I, one from Mark II, and the second of the micro-episodes, and so on. I can't give precise publication dates for the Marutoku specials, 
Most sites that talk about them don't bother to give dates at all, while some have dates that are plainly wrong, like March 1989 and October 1995. My best guess is that Marutoku's 1 and 2, and therefore the Chapter of Heaven and Chapter of Earth micro-episodes, both went on sale in July 1989. The first one might actually have preceded SD Gundam's counterattack, which would make a certain amount of sense based on its content, but again, I can't be sure. As with the SD Olympics short from Mark 1, the micro-episodes were included on Marutoku Specials 1 and 2 as sweeteners to encourage fans who already owned the original to now splash out for the new tapes. 3100 yen, or about $53 for three minutes of what we will generously call new animation, doesn't seem like much of a great bargain special, but then again, I have personally bought and imported all of these SD shorts multiple times in multiple formats, so who's the real sucker? Marutoku's 3 and 4 probably came out on the same day in November 1989, although different sources disagree when it comes to the specific day. Along with some recycled content, Marutoku 3 included Chapter of Truth and The Space Mystery Operation, while Marutoku 4 included Chapter of Reason and Ninja Battle of Zoom City. If all of this is accurate, then SD Gundam Mark III itself was a weird inversion. It was published in March 1990 as part of the mainline SD OVA series. It was a prestige release and bore a premium price tag but its content was 100% recycled from last year's bargain bin. I do wonder how the fans felt about it at the time. All of this means that in order to watch everything in release order, we now need to cover Mark III by starting with Part Three, working our way forward to Part Six, and then looping back around to cover Parts 1 and 2. We have elected to talk about Part 2, Ninja Battle of Zoom City, in this week's podcast, because it takes place in the same overall Sengoku-den universe as parts 3 through 6. Part 1 is a standalone, and we'll handle it on its own next week. Parts 1 and 2 were released at the same time, so we feel like it's within the bounds of MSB's mission to take this approach. I know these publication details are arcane, but I hope that at least a few of you find them as interesting as I do. Anyway, let's carry on. SD Gundam Mark III was released on March 23rd or March 25th, 1990. Of the parts we intend to cover today, the four micro-episodes were all overseen by Takamatsu Shinji. There is no credited screenwriter, storyboard artist, or subdirector. The animation directors were Kobayashi Toshimitsu for Chapter of Heaven and Chapter of Earth, Yamada Hiroyuki for Chapter of Truth, and Soeda Kazuhiro for Chapter of Reason. The Ninja Battle of Zoom City was overseen by Amino Tetsuro and directed by Takamatsu Shinji. Yokoyama Akitoshi was the animation director and character designer. Akitoshi was just getting started in his career at this point, but he would go on to work on a host of prestigious projects. In no particular order, Giant Robo, Samurai Champloo, Gurren Lagann, Full Metal Alchemist, Wolf's Reign, Attack on Titan, Kill la Kill, Neon Genesis Evangelion, Cowboy Bebop, Escaflone the Movie, Summer Wars, Tatami Galaxy, and even the video game Final Fantasy VIII. <laughs> what a CV. 
Ikeda Shigemi returns as art director, and the music credit is split between Totsuka Osamu and Kenji Kawai. Now, let's finally go to the recap. Or in this case, recaps. Take it away, Twinkling Stars sound effect. In the first of the four super-limited animation shorts, Chapter of Heaven, the Gundam and Zaku armies confront each other on the field of battle. Their mightiest warriors introduce themselves. The Gundam Band of Five, including Musha Gundam, Mark II, Zeta, Double Zeta, and Nu, and the Zaku brothers, Kozaku, Konzaku, and Shinzaku, accompanied by Lord Zakuto. The Mark II slices through the swords of the Zaku brothers, but they recover from the initial shock and fight on. They think they have the upper hand when they manage to surround Zeta, after he's combined with the Gundam horse Oracion to form the Kentaurus Specharu. But he leaps out of the way at the last moment and their attacks hit each other. Sensing that the tide has turned, Lord Zakuto fires a lightning-like beam from his helmet, holding off the Gundam band of five so that he and the Zaku brothers may escape, clinging to kites that disappear into the clouds. Chapter of Earth opens in the Gundam Castle. While Shogundam talks to the Gundam Band of Five about the threat posed by Lord Zakuto and the Army of Darkness, he senses an intruder. Stabbing through the floorboards, his spear pierces all three Zaku brothers. When they still try to attack, Nu holds them off with his funnels before summoning the Gundam dragon Hiryu to form the Musha Hiryu. The three brothers run from Hiryu's fire breath, only to have to turn back when the Double Zeta transforms into the Musha tank. They run straight into Nu's sword. The Zaku brothers are forced to run away, vowing vengeance for this defeat. Chapter of Truth introduces the Ninja of Justice, Shinobi of Shinobi, Onmitsu. Charged with delivering a secret letter to the Great Shogun, he speeds through forests and across fields until he is confronted by Hambrabi of the Tobinin clan. The speed of their movements is such that at first, all we can see are streaks of color bounding across the landscape, then we cannot see them at all. When neither of them wins this exchange, they stop, staring across the field at each other poised to attack but waiting for their opponent to make the first move. Day fades into night, and a new day dawns. Back at the Gundam castle, Onmitsu delivers the great Shogun's reply to Shogundam. But if he's here, who is standing across from Hambrabi? Onmitsu was so fast, he managed to leave a wooden decoy behind and go deliver the message, with Hambrabi none the wiser until he saw Onmitsu returning to the Gundam castle. In Chapter of Reason, the Zaku brothers decide that they have to deal with their numerical disadvantage. They have to find a way to isolate the Gundam Band of Five and fight them one at a time. They send Musha a love note from Zakuko, arranging a rendezvous by the canal and asking him to come alone. When he arrives, they surround him. Understanding what has happened, he yells, You have no honor! But to his opponents, all that matters is victory. Yet by the time they are done with arguments and insults, the rest of the Gundam Band of Five have arrived. The Zaku brothers are run through with a spear and hit with swords. A 50-ton weight is dropped on them from the air. 
and they are finished off with a beam attack that sends them flying off into the night sky. And in SD Gundam Sengokuden, the ninja battle at Zoom City, the ninja Onmitsu is charged with infiltrating the newly completed Zoom City castle and discovering the identity of the secretive Dark Shogun. Tunneling under the outer wall, he accidentally comes out in the moat. Climbing up the walls of the castle itself, he is knocked down when a cannon is run out. And when Onmitsu lands on the roof below, he falls through a trapdoor, slips down a curling, knotted network of slides, and lands in a trap. He just barely manages to get out before being crushed by the falling ceiling. And Onmitsu runs straight into Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru, relaxing and playing cards waiting for an opportunity to glimpse the Dark Shogun. They came in through the front door. But Onmitsu's bad luck is just beginning. After bumping into a string of alarm chimes, he has to dodge a rain of spears and falls through another trapdoor, this time into an ornate room where a group of Army of Darkness mobile suits, led by the Kubele, are relaxing. Though he distracts them briefly by unleashing an amazing clothing sale, the next door he runs through opens into a pit full of spikes. Spreading out his kerchief in the flying squirrel technique, Onmitsu glides over the pit, but lands right in front of the Kubele and her companions. Their fight takes them through all the hidden portions of the castle, and Onmitsu is only able to get away because Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru are captured. The two are tied up and hung over a pool full of hungry, grinning sharks. Nonmitsu plans to leave them to their fate when he is caught by another group of guards. One of these, the Ashimar, transforms into a shuriken and launches himself at the ninja, missing by inches, nicking the rope, and crashing through the wall on the other side. Taking the only clear path of escape, Onmitsu jumps for the rope, swinging his captured allies to safety on the other side, only to fall into the pool when the rope snaps. The sharks strike immediately, but that's not Onmitsu being gnawed on. He managed to swap places with one of his enemies. Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru fall to the depths of the castle, landing in a cake in the middle of a banquet hall, where the Army of Darkness commanders and their Zako minions are celebrating completion of the castle. When one commander prepares to break a watermelon while blindfolded, they replace the melon with a bomb. The subsequent explosion launches them to the highest room in the castle, the Dark Shogun's chamber. They fall back through the castle before they can get a photo, but land on a serendipitous teeter-totter, launching Onmitsu to the top of the highest tower. Back and forth they go, powered by gravity, verniers, and more explosions, until finally Onmitsu is able to snap a photograph of their mysterious enemy. Zoom City crumbles to dust after all of those explosions, and Onmitsu returns to the Gundam castle. But alas, what he thought was the Dark Shogun was only a decoy. Will they ever learn the identity of this shadowy figure? During the introduction, I said that we didn't entirely know when these shorts that we're about to talk about actually first came out. But this first mini short, super limited animation, Chapter of Heaven, 
really does seem like the first appearance of these characters in animation because it's really just them introducing themselves. It's three minutes of them introducing themselves. Other possible theory, this sequence of these super short, super limited animation shorts are parodying a particular kind of show of serialized drama or media wherein a lot of many episodes is taken up by characters <laughs> introducing themselves <laughs> by the time they're done introducing who they are the episode's half over. And you get those introductions repeatedly throughout a series. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They don't stop doing it once they've done it once, even for the core team. That's true. The whole point of a stock transformation sequence is that it gets used over and over again. And that's as true in Sailor Moon as it was in Gundam Double Zeta. Within the context of these shorts, I found the little tricks that they used to keep the animation limited actually very funny. The intro sequence, obviously, with the banners and <laughs> with the chibi, like, teeny tiny, even tinier than SD mobile suits basically slap fighting at each other. I don't know if you noticed, there's a Zako in the foreground giving a peace sign <laughs> and not fighting anybody. <laughs> it took me, like, four, four viewings before I noticed that, but yes. Love him. <laughs> and, of course, the actual slap fight is probably, like, three frames total that are being alternated. There are a lot of moments where when characters move, they're clearly just sliding a cell across a background. Mm -hmm. The most egregious one being the Hambrabi, when the Hambrabi goes to check on like, why? I think I just saw Onmitsu run past. Why is Onmitsu still standing in front of me? And they just like slide <laughs> him across. They even do kind of like a, they do like a sound effect to fake the walking. Oh. That in context, this is in uh, Chapter of Truth, just highlights that it's not walking. And probably my favorite example of the super, super limited animation was when the Zaku brothers surround Musha Gundam after having set the trap with the love note for him to meet Zaku Ko by the canal. Yeah, uh, if you didn't, if you <laughs> didn't notice in the love note, for those of you watching at home, they've just added. Ko, which is a character that is very common in women's names in Japanese, uh, to the end of Zaku. Yeah. You so see a lot of like Hanako, Yumiko, etc. They made it Zaku Ko <laughs> and did little hearts and sort of cutesy writing. It's a bit like in English, we would say maybe Zaket and put a little like bow on a Zaku. But anyway, when the Musha Gundam realizes that he's been surrounded, one of his eyes shifts from center off to the side. <laughs> one of his eyes looks askance. <laughs> <laughs> it does, um, stripped down to its very basic elements, reveal a lot about how animation works on a, on a mechanical level when you see it limited so much. I was looking through the credits. I'm pretty sure there's one key animator total on each of these shorts. Just one guy. And there's a credited in-betweens studio, uh, so he's not doing like every single drawing, but the actual extended shorts tend to have like six animators working on them. There are those ridiculous crows that 
fly <laughs> by in the background of the Hambrabi on Mitsu confrontation, which is to say they are some really silly looking, very simplified drawings of birds that slide by in the background. Oh, I mean, they're, they're children's drawings of birds. That's what I would have drawn when I was six, if you asked me to draw a crow. Oh, I did need to ask you the names for the three Zaku bros. Kozaku, Konzaku, and Shinzaku. Those were invented for these shorts, right? Uh, yes and no. They were <laughs> invented for this setting, but okay. I think they first appear in those little mini two-page or even one-page comics that were included in the instruction manuals. But those characters they tacked on to the beginnings all have meanings. The first one, Kozaku, that first character means old or ancient, so it's old Zaku. Kon means now, so the current Zaku. And then Shin means new, new Zaku. And these are the Zaku 1 is the old Zaku, the oldest brother. The Zaku 2 is the now Zaku, the middle brother. And the Zaku 3 is the Shin Zaku, the youngest brother. Uh, and in one of the Shin Zaku's introduction sequences, it's holding a rose in its mouth because the Zaku 3 is the one that Mashima was piloting. Oh, mm -hmm. nice. Yep. They take on some of the characteristics of their pilots, even when the pilots are completely absent from the setting, even when there are no humans whatsoever. Though in these shorts, the regular voice actors are not present. That's not Amuro's voice actor doing the Musha for the super limited shorts. I believe he does return for the, the bigger one for Ninja Battle at Zoom City. In terms of other little writing and character things I noticed in these super limited shorts, most of the banners are pretty self-explanatory. There's Gundam Gundan, or the Gundam Army, and Zaku Gundan, Zaku Army. But there's two other banners that make an appearance. One of the banners might be recognizable to some of you who are particularly interested in stuff from the Warring States, Sengoku period. Uh, it has the character for wind, the character for a grove or a forest, the one for fire, and the one for mountain. Uh, this is typically pronounced Furin Kazan and is a quote from Sun Tzu's Art of War about moving as swiftly as the wind, as silently as a forest, attacking as fiercely as a fire, having undefeatable defense like a mountain, and was the battle standard for the Sengoku period daimyo Takeda Shingen. The other interesting banner is one that reads Uchu Ichi, which I think is a reference to Eyug. Uh, Uchu meaning space, Ichi meaning one, but in this case being about like space united. Mm. Is that on the Zaku army banner or the Gundam army the banner? The Gundam army banner. Okay. Very interesting. And then in the Hambrabi Onmitsu fight, when Hambrabi goes up to the wooden log dummy and it has a face painted on it, the face is made up of Japanese phonetic characters. Uh, I have no idea how old this practice is. It's just one of those like cute little things to draw that seem to stick around forever. Speaking of which, Onmitsu is another one of those terms that they treat like a name, but is actually a title. This is for the Onmitsu Gundam, yes. who appears for the first time in Truth Chapter. The ninja, the shinobi. And I believe is based on the Alex. 
Onmitsu is a historical term for a spy or secret agent in the service of a daimyo or shogun. It also means clandestine or secret or covert now, but the historical usage is that it was a position, it was a title for a thing somebody would do, a role they fulfilled. And if we look at the super limited shorts, we can see a progression over time of them getting sort of more complex, more interesting. The first one really is just the introductions. It's just here are these characters. And it's absolutely the most limited of all of them. It makes a point of displaying how little effort went into it. I'm sure a lot of effort did go into it, but it looks cheaply made. Yes. The second one is uh, slightly more animated, slightly more complex. The storyline is slightly more interesting, and they show off all of these different transformations. Not just the centaur special, but also the Musha eagle, the Musha dragon, hear you, and the, the tank. And the tank, yes. Well, <laughs> you say transformations. They glide two still drawings towards each other, and then they animate a flash of light, and then they show the combined thing, which I'm fine with. I think they're actually very clever in how they create a feeling of dynamism with a lot of still frames. And in some ways, the tropiness of it helps them do that. I was thinking about the sort of classic framing of, you know, a swordsman charges forward, and then they show the swordsmen in the foreground with the enemies they attacked in the background who've been attacked so quickly they haven't even reacted to being attacked yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a perfectly still shot with maybe some like speed lines between the setup and the, the final. But it, it makes it feel like a lot of motion happened even though they didn't actually have to animate very much. They call attention to this in uh, Truth Chapter when Onmitsu Gundam and the Hambrabi are fighting. <laughs> and, and just streaks of light moving around. Well, and then the narrator is like, and then they started moving so fast that we couldn't even see them. And they, they just stop animating the movements at all, and we just see the background. Quick question. Did the Hambrabi's little tentacle thing always look like a snake? No. <laughs> but in the show, it is called the sea serpent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They make the end of it look like a snake head. It's pretty cool. And the Hambrabi look like a Buddhist priest, sort of veiled and with the big prayer beads. I think some Buddhist priests at some points in history in Japan wore like a tall pointy hat. Mm-hmm. So that sounds right. that's probably and we've already talked about how the shoulders are similar to certain garments from this era, the like broad pointy shoulder. So that's probably what they're going for there. And there were warrior monks. Oh, lots of them. Tons of them. Going back to the idea of a progression between these shorts, the third one, Chapter of Truth, gives us something like an actual story as compared to the earlier ones. And Chapter of Reason starts to get into some of that slapstick that is going to be so prominent in the ninja battle at Zoom City. We start to get hints of that slapstick earlier on. I think in particular, the fact that the Zaku brothers are constantly being run through all three of them with the same spear. Like everybody always manages to catch all three of them at once. Oh, uh, it happened again. Uh, every time. Chapter of Earth also sets up that overkill sense, that sort of humorous excess 
because they get run through with a spear, and then they get surrounded by funnels, and then they get chased in one direction by the dragon breathing fire, and then they get chased in the other direction by the eagle, and then they get hit with the cannon. <laughs> one after another after another. Chapter of Reason, they get speared, they get hit over the head with swords, and then they get a massive weight dropped on them. I also love the contrast between these extremely silly shorts and then the very true-to-genre narration at both the beginning and the end, but especially at the end, where it's like, this is the fate that awaits all who work in shadow. Can the Gundam army survive? Wait until next time to find out. Highlighting for mockery all of those self-serious genre conventions. While these four superior limited shorts, you know, there's nothing substantial to any of them. They're very fluffy and light. I think they're thoroughly skippable, but they're also very interesting. And given that the investment for each one is only about three minutes, uh, I, I would say they're also fun. They're worth watching. Don't expect too much and you won't be disappointed. Young me, a little snobby and desperate to be serious and deep, would never have thought that adult me would feel any nostalgia for classic slapstick cartoony humor. And yet, I have been very much <laughs> enjoying these. And uh, if you grew up watching that kind of cartoon, this will probably feel quite nostalgic for you. If you've been enjoying the slapstick, then I imagine you must have really liked the ninja battle at Zoom City, because it's basically all slapstick. Counterpoint. Most of its humor is about subverting your expectations and the element of surprise. Well, yes. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's not slapstick. No, but for instance... For instance, if I was slapped with a stick, I would be very surprised. All right, but when the Zaku army issues this challenge to the Gundam army, and they do the spooky uplighting on a couple of these characters which is a trope for showing villains, for making someone look scary. And then they zoom out a little bit and we see a bunch of them holding flashlights under their faces to achieve that look, <laughs> and it's funny. Onmitsu disappears in a flash, but then we see he's just clinging to the ceiling. Or he disappears in a flash and the show says, let's show you in slow motion. And he's <laughs> sawing his way through the wall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru card game where they're just sitting with their cups of tea and bowl of uh, mandarin oranges, sitting on little floor cushions playing cards in the depths of this castle. <laughs> you know, that's true. Although it's expressed in the form of slapstick a lot, so much of the core of the humor is about taking the wind out of things, about puncturing the overblown sense of importance. That we have the shinobi of shinobi, the Onmitsu Gundam, who can disappear in a flash and move at 10 times the speed of a normal person. But the whole short is about making fun of Onmitsu Gundam for being just so bad at his job for getting caught in traps and being shot by cannons and digging directly into a river and not being able to cling to the ceiling properly. He hits so many of the ninja tropes breaking into the palace, right? He's got the little breathing reed while he hides underwater, the suction cups to climb up the outside of the building, and the panel on his back to make it look like he's part of the stone wall. He's got the digging claws. And then it turns out that Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru just walked in the front door. <laughs>
And then he sets off all of these very traditional, very funny traps. The falling ceiling, the spikes in a pit, the alarm chimes, uh, which I believe were a real thing. Yeah, yeah. There's a pool of sharks, but it looks like a bathhouse. <laughs> There's a group of guards lounging around who he accidentally runs into, but they're not drinking and gambling, they're eating parfait. <laughs> <laughs> Though that bit is very gendered. Like, yes, those are the three female mobile suits. Those are the three kunoichi, or female ninjas. The kubile, or in this context, kubare, and her lackeys, who are eating the big parfaits, which is... There's a stereotype in Japanese culture that liking sweets is girly. Like, kids like sweets, and women like sweets. It's unmanly to like sweet food. Yeah. And the big, elaborate, overflowing ice cream parfaits that they're eating are like the anime trope for sweets that girls like. They're also just exceptionally popular and fun and delicious. I recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, we're falling into stereotypes. Well, it's sort of like I don't love that he distracts them by first he tries to be like, oh, no, I'm delivering this basket of fruit. And they're like, pshh. We're not going to fall for that. And it's like, oh, look at this massive sale, which, haha, women love shopping. But I've been in like a discount clothing warehouse when they bring out a new cart of bags and seen the feeding frenzy of people descending on them. Uh, I was there, too. And that is the first thing I thought of when I saw that. It was wild. Uh So, you know, not entirely unfounded in reality. I also took the liberty of translating what was on the signage there. The first sign says, Die bargain, or huge bargains, big bargains. Then, Senen Yakuichi, 1,000 yen each. And then, Saigo Iso, which is like close out, purging old inventory. And 1,000 yen is like roughly 10 bucks. It would have been a bit more then. I don't know, actually. I don't know what the exchange rate was like. I've had to look this up repeatedly (laughs) over this season. And in 89, the exchange rate was between 130 yen and 140 yen to the dollar. Okay, so it's even less than 10 bucks. Yeah, good deals. Good deals. Um, (laughs) Which mobile suit is it of those three kunoichi that they've painted the eyes on her shoulders? That's the Palace Athene. Okay. If you, like us, enjoy this aesthetic of mobile suits done up like Warring States era characters, then this episode is going to give you more of that. New characters that we didn't get to see in the prior one. And some reappearances of rather deep cut mobile suits. The Ashimard. (laughs) Turning itself into a shuriken. (laughs) I noticed that the uh, top of the Hyakushiki's helmet face has been turned into a clock face. There's a clock hand on it. I do not know what is up with that, but I did notice it. I'm sure it's some kind of joke. Maybe having to do with the shape of the helmet or... Could be. uh, Yeah, I'm I'm not certain, but (laughs) it's like, oh, I I guess you're a clock now, too. I love the redesign of Zoom City as a Sengoku-era castle. That's a shame because they destroy it at the end. Isn't it a classic fantasy trope that you, like, kill the evil wizard or destroy some central thing or steal something and the whole palace just crumbles down? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
The joke is, that was a load-bearing boss. The moments when they show us a cross-section of the castle, that felt like something out of a video game to me, though I couldn't have said which game. Hmm, maybe, though to me I mostly just felt like they were really channeling Looney Tunes mm. throughout this. Mm -hmm. They even do what I think of as like the Looney Tunes gag, which is the bit where Onmitsu is standing on nothing, but doesn't fall <laughs> until he looks down and realizes. Until he notices that he's not standing on anything. Yeah, totally. Well, or when he uh, kicks up a floor plank to stop the cubile, that's a classic Looney Tunes-esque slapstick moment. Um, the whole sequence with the seesaw where they're like knocking oh my each other God, up and the, down. <laughs> with, with bombs. It was, that was great. The one other traditional style thing, the two other traditional style things I noticed were... The three traditional style <laughs> things. In some of the backgrounds, they put in these very uh, stylized pine trees, which are typical in Japanese art from that era. In the tatami room that Onmitsu falls into that the kunoichi are hanging out in, all of the sliding panel doors are just designs ripped straight from Hanafuda cards, which is a, an old playing card game that uses traditional symbols and imagery for the suits. Sometimes you'll hear the bit of trivia that Nintendo, before getting into video games, was a playing card manufacturer, and the playing cards they manufactured were Hanafuda cards. Some of the anachronisms as jokes that we saw in the previous Sengoku Gundam short uh, crop up again, particularly in the banquet hall. The ceiling is strung with banners of flags of the world, which obviously most of those countries didn't exist in the Sengoku period. Uh, and then there's AV equipment on the stage. There's like a speaker and probably a stereo. <laughs> and those flashlights you mentioned earlier. Actually, I think my favorite bit from Ninja Battle is one of those anachronisms. And it's when Onmitsu is calling back to base to report that he hasn't found anything yet. But he's wearing a trench coat. He's got the collar up around his face. And he's in a phone booth looking very suspicious, very Cold War era spy. But the phone booth is just in the middle of the tatami room. And yep. the Kunoichi walk right past it, carrying the captured Hyaku brothers. That was fabulous. Again, that's one of those bits of sort of classic noir imagery that I have no idea how far back it actually goes. I'm sure it cropped up in old Dick Tracy comics, which Dick Tracy was pre-war, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's that is an old stock trope, but has had so much staying power. The whole structure of Onmitsu just bumbling his way through this mission, ultimately resulting in a not quite success, really made me think of, like, Mr. Bean. Although Mr. Bean feels very old to me personally, it's only from 1990. This short predates it, but not by very much. So there must have been, there was something in the water in the late 80s and early 90s. Something made these kinds of slapstick, bumbling, bumbling characters just feel really poignant in that moment. This is a tradition that goes back to Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, oh, sure. and, and even further back than that. I mean, uh, arguably, Odysseus just bumbles his way through the whole <laughs> Odyssey. But in terms of the incorporation of that physical humor, 
I'm sure there were stage performers who did very similar things in like vaudeville and street performance type venues. No and, doubt. And a lot of clowning is that, like classic clowning in circuses. Uh, humans just love this stuff. And yet I'd be hard pressed to think of a contemporary example. But there are periods, I think, when it's more prevalent. And for whatever reason, this period seems to be one of those. A last bit of interesting kanji towards the very end of this segment when they go back to the Gundam castle. There's a shot of a door and it's got a lantern hanging out in front of it. And the lantern says Genzo Chu, which means development in process in the same way that if you have a, a real working dark room, there's typically a light outside that tells people whether or not they can come in. Because if they come in and expose all the work to outside light, they could ruin the film. Uh, and then the sign over the door reads development or processing room, Genzo Heya, but is written right to left. Hmm. And on the lantern, it's written top to bottom. Japanese is frequently written right to left. That's not unusual, but it can be tricky sometimes when you're learning to read Japanese to wrap your head around the fact that You'll see it written top to bottom. You'll see it written right to left. You'll see it written left to right sometimes if it's only going horizontally. You can find it written in a lot of different configurations. And so it often takes a moment. Like when I saw the sign over the door, I thought the characters from the lantern had been swapped. And I was like, oh, is that another word? What? <laughs> it was briefly very confusing. There's a note on the door that I spent a long time puzzling out. Between the video resolution and the vagaries of handwriting, it was tricky, but I finally got it. And it's pretty much what you would expect. Kankeisha igai tachiiri kinshi no koto, or entry by anyone other than staff is prohibited. And then stuck to the outside of the door are goldish oval coins, and they're labeled as old Japanese coinage. One says koban, and one says ichiryu. I don't know if there was a practice of affixing money to parts of your house. But nowadays, you can buy koban charms at Shinto shrines. Typically, they're gold foil or gold paper wrapped around a piece of cardboard and are charms to attract good fortune, which is to say money. This style of coin is also what the lucky cat statues, manekineko, hold in one of their paws. If you're one of those people who thinks we read too much into Gundam, you will enjoy our coverage of these shorts, because for the most part, we don't think they're trying to say much of anything. Ironically, I'm now going to read into these a little bit. <laughs> no! <laughs> because as I kind of said earlier, the core of the humor of this short is about making fun of the powerful, the confident, the esteemed. The shot at the beginning that you pointed out with the flashlights is about showing that this moment of drama, this presentation of power and scariness is in fact just kind of ridiculous, like a thing that little kids do. And then the whole thing is about taking this very esteemed, well-regarded ninja and showing how silly his life and his skills actually are and over and over again hurting and humiliating him. And then there's that specific moment where he escapes from the falling ceiling trap and is like, ha ha, no trap would ever catch me. Even though seconds ago, he was pounding on the door, screaming and crying, let me out, let me out, let me out. 
That's a lot of humor for kids, though, isn't it? A lot of humor that is created for children is about, haha, all those people who run your life and boss you around are actually pretty funny Absolutely. and ridiculous. But Sky Castle, the SD short we talked about last week, didn't do that. That wasn't part of its DNA. And as I was thinking about this, I came to the realization that the relationship between Ninja Battle and Sky Castle is like the relationship between Double Zeta and Zeta. So if you liked Double Zeta's chaotic energy, you're going to like Ninja Battle. Small counterpoint. Both shorts make a point of how out of touch with what's happening the Zaku army commanders are. They're always like partying and singing and dancing while all of this chaos is going on. That is true. But it's much more prominent and touches on a lot more different characters in the super limited shorts and in Ninja Battle. And now Tom's research on the hidden meaning of the names of the micro-episodes. Back in 2012, the official Gundam website, Gundam.info, posted a series of short articles looking back on the history of the franchise and exploring topics like masked villains, amphibious mobile suits, theme songs, and so on. A few of these articles address the history of SD Gundam, which is how I stumbled upon them back when I was researching how the aesthetic developed in the years before it made the jump to animation. There's not too much information about this week's shorts, but when mentioning the Ten, Chi, Shin, and Ri micro-episodes, the article drops a bit of tantalizing bait. It says, there's some meaning behind these titles. If you're curious, go ask your dad, or maybe your grandfather. At first, I thought that perhaps Heaven, Earth, Truth, Reason was a Yoji Jukuko. Nina mentioned these when we were talking about the banners carried by the respective armies, and I think we've talked about them before, but they're sets of four characters that express some traditional idiom, usually by reference to a well-known story or phrase. So you could say Iseki Nicho, one stone, two birds, to reference the borrowed English phrase, kill two birds with one stone. Or you could describe someone who has seen it all and is ready for anything by saying Umisen Yamasen, a thousand oceans, a thousand mountains. This invokes the story of a snake that transforms into a dragon after it manages to live for a thousand years in the ocean and a thousand years in the mountains. And I thought maybe that comment about ask your dad or your grandfather meant that we were looking for an older phrase, one that had fallen out of common usage. But no. When searching for a phrase that matched the kanji, we discovered that they were, in fact, the stage name for one of Japan's earliest and most famous idols. Born Saito Mari, she debuted in 1971 under the name Amachi Mari, an alternate reading of the characters Tenchi Shinri. Idol, or Idoru, entered Japanese parlance in 1964, after the release of the phenomenally popular French film Cherche Lidol, renamed Aidoru Osagase for the Japanese market. The movie's cast included a number of famous musicians, including Charles Aznavour, but for our purposes today, the most important was a young Sylvie Vertan. She made a huge impression. 
Her single from the movie sold more than a million copies in Japan, and thereafter, the term idol became shorthand for singers who fit into the same pattern of talented, beautiful, charming, and young. There were, of course, already performers who fit that aesthetic, but it was in the late 60s that the idol type became codified. For the next few years, French songs were all the rage, and young Japanese idols performed covers to ride that trend. But talent agencies, with decades of experience scouting youths and developing them to fit into particular entertainment niches, were busy figuring out their own homegrown version. How should an idol look? How should they sound? What sort of hobbies should they have? What kinds of personalities should they be allowed to express? In the early 70s, they hit upon a pattern that is still recognizable today. Idols would be young, typically still in their teens or early 20s at the oldest. They would be talented, but obviously still developing as performers in order to give the audience a sense of investment in their growth. They would be attractive, but more cute than beautiful. They would be above average, but life-sized, at once idolized and relatable. A manager and promoter of idols, Aizawa Hideyoshi, explained that, quote, to be life-sized, toshindai, is to publicly confirm that idols are not living in this world on their own, but together with people who support them and who they are expected to support. I mean, their customers, staff members, producers, everyone who's interested. Even though idols are expected to become role models of some kind and to represent the public in certain ways, this role cannot be accomplished unless they keep pace with the people all around them. They cannot run ahead too fast or lag too far behind. But despite this aesthetic of relatability, these life-sized idols are created products, fictional roles with a carefully crafted veneer of artificial authenticity. To quote an article from the Japan Times, starting in the 70s, the key to creating a star was making use of the power of TV programs. Pop music shows were launch pads for future teen idols. The girls who won these TV singing contests were shaped for maximum appeal to the opposite sex under a comprehensive marketing strategy that covered not only the songs they sang, but their choreography on stage, clothing, and hairstyles. This teen idol consumer package was well suited to the early 1970s, when many young people had begun to seek a respite from political violence and turbulent student movements and turned to fictitious idols. The life cycle of an idol is fleeting, especially for the women. Most female idols have careers that last for three years or less. Between 1971 and 1975, something like 700 idols debuted in Japan, but only a handful of them left a lasting impression. One who did was Amachi Mari. She had attended music-specific junior high and high schools starting out in piano before transferring to the vocal music department. After graduating in 1969, she signed on with the talent agency Watanabe Productions. They're going to be important later, so remember the name. Two years later, Amachi auditioned for a role in the long-running TV drama Jikan Desyo. Amachi didn't get the role, but her performance impressed the other cast members enough that they convinced the director to hastily write in a new role for her. A few months later, she released her first single, 
the smash hit Mizu Iro no Koi, something like Love the Color of Water. For the next few years, she was on top of the world. She formed a trio with other mega-popular idols Minami Saori and Koyanagi Rumiko, and together they sent five songs to number one on the Oricon singles chart. She had her own series of TV shows. She appeared on Character Goods, and in 1973, her profile was so high that when the company Bridgestone decided to manufacture bicycles for young children, they made Common Rider-themed bikes for boys and Amachi Mari-themed bikes for girls. The basic facts of what happened next are as follows. In 1977, she was hospitalized for a thyroid disorder and withdrew temporarily from the entertainment industry. She attempted a comeback in 79, releasing, appropriately enough, a cover of a Sylvie Vartan song. But the comeback never got off the ground. She left Watanabe Productions for another management company, but soon left that one too. And the next. And the next. In 82, she attempted an image makeover, trying to leave behind the childish idol image. She appeared in serious stage plays, hosted a radio program, and made regular appearances on TV variety shows. But she met with limited success. She pivoted again, this time to adult entertainment. In 83, she posed for a semi-nude photo book. In 85, she starred in an erotic film and in 86, she starred in an explicit adult video. After that, she bounced around. In the 90s, she wrote a book on dieting. In the 2000s, she hosted late-night radio programs, occasionally reprising her popular old songs for special events. As of 2015, she was living in a retirement home in Kawasaki, having, by her own admission, blown through all of her money on extravagant living. Her monthly expenses were covered by members of her fan club. But the exact sequence of events surrounding her fall from superstardom is disputed. In recent years, Amachi stated that her hospitalization in 77 was actually for depression. The claim that she had a thyroid disorder was a lie, concocted by her managers, presumably because they thought that admitting their idol was depressed would hurt her image. And theirs. What's more, the dramatic collapse in her popularity actually preceded, and perhaps even triggered, her depression. It seems to have begun around 1974 or 1975, three years after her debut. With the benefit of hindsight and context, it's easy to see Amachi's brief time at the top as typical for an idol. Three years of glory, then shuffle off stage and quietly disappear into regular life. In the 80s, idol groups even started a formal process of graduating idols whose popularity was starting to wane so that they could replace them with fresh-faced newcomers. Today, after decades of experience, no one is surprised by the brevity of an idol's career. But in the early 70s, there was no model to follow, no reason why Amachi should have expected her career to vanish the way it did. But perhaps there is more to it than just structural forces, like the market's hunger for novelty, the inherent transience of youth as well as any popularity based on it, and of course the long-standing social expectation that a woman pushing 25 ought to be at home raising children, not on stage selling albums. It's possible that Amachi was sabotaged, collateral damage in a showdown between powerful companies 
struggling for dominance over the entertainment industry. The companies that manage idols and other entertainers in Japan, called Jimusho, are deeply secretive but incredibly powerful. Operating a bit like the old Hollywood studio system, these agencies manage a stable of entertainers. A few big names, some up-and-comers, and plenty of prospects awaiting their chance. The entertainers are employees of the agency. They're paid a monthly wage, but they sign over the rights to the profits from their work. The agency decides on the artist's image, controls which jobs they get, which products they endorse. The contracts are long-term and highly restrictive, and leaving your agency is a good way to get blacklisted from the whole industry. While there are hundreds of individual agencies operating in Japan, they are, in effect, organized into a handful, perhaps a dozen, of informal but very hierarchical conglomerates. These conglomerates control enough stars that they can dictate which performers each TV network is allowed to have for a particular program. They leverage this to get exposure for their new talent. If you want our top star to appear in your primetime drama, then you had better find roles for these ten up-and-comers in your other shows. Something like this happened in 1973. Amachi's agency, Watanabe Productions, which was one of the most powerful in the industry at the time, teamed up with what is now TV Asahi to produce a new music audition program. Think American Idol. They hoped that this would serve as a launchpad for future stars. They scheduled this new show for 8 o'clock Monday evening, a primetime slot that put it in direct competition against Nippon Television's own pre-existing popular music program. Executives from NTV met with Watsnabe Productions to try to resolve the conflict, but the Watsnabe side refused to budge. If NTV wanted access to Watsnabe's stars, then they had better reschedule the show. As I said, Watanabe was a heavyweight agency at the time, with control of plenty of stars other than Amachi, and they could reasonably expect to be able to bully a TV station like this. But on this occasion, NTV refused to budge. They reached out to all of the other agencies, Watanabe's competitors, and made deals that would ensure they would have a steady supply of talent. Then they cut ties with Watanabe. The other agencies, organized into an anti-Watanabe alliance, refused to put their singers on the new Watanabe TV Asahi show. Watanabe's bench was deep, but not deep enough to sustain the whole show on its own. It limped along for half a year, and then went quietly off the air. Isolated and utterly defeated, Watanabe Productions' influence collapsed. Perhaps it is just a coincidence that Amachi Mari's popularity fell apart right when her management agency's blunders turned it into an industry-wide pariah. Perhaps it was all of those structural factors. Perhaps, as the tabloids at the time alleged, she really did repel audiences by revealing too much of the real self behind the idol facade. Or perhaps it was some combination of all of those things. But to jump back to SD Gundam and that period, 1989 to 1990, when these four micro-episodes were released, the reference to Amachi would have been nostalgic, not just because she was a star whose heyday was 15 years prior, but because the whole genre of idols was at that moment experiencing a historic and unprecedented decline.
Those years are now remembered as the band boom for the way market preferences shifted toward more, quote, real and authentic musicians. The band boom wouldn't last, nothing with boom in its name ever does, and the idol industry would eventually adapt and bounce back in the late 90s, arguably stronger than ever. But SD Gundam directors Amino and Takamatsu would have had no way to know that. It might have seemed like the whole genre was consigned to the past, like ragtime or disco. Between the references to old animation like Looney Tunes or Hanna-Barbera's Laugh Olympics, old movies like Zorro, delinquent outfits from decades past, and now an idol whose peak popularity overlapped with the two directors' teenage years, the whole project of SD Gundam starts to look a lot like an extended nostalgia trip. Next time on episode 6.6, It Belongs in a Museum, we research and discuss SD Gundam Mark III Part 1 and Thief, Collector, Tomato Tomato, Gundam Character Alternate Costume DLC, Cat-Based Meteorology, Carsonization, Return of the Gundam Hammer. Never play near colony crossings. Denki! Poppin! Catfishing. And the majestic Zacrello Whale. This served no purpose, but nevertheless. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is A Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. I don't know, Nina, is it ever going to be safe to share wrong Gundam opinions again? Wrong opinions like... MSB's ongoing research into the kanji used in SD Gundam shows that Sunrise has finally made a mecha anime that is actually about the characters. <laughs> I'm glad you like that one. Did you write that? Yeah. That was I well I wondered if one of our patrons had. No, no, that's that's that, on me. That was incredible. Thank you. Thank you. It's probably your best wrong Gundam opinion ever. <laughs> Uh, let's hope it's my best one yet. I Yeah, I mean, I also have a terrible memory. I'm sure there have been lots of fabulous ones, but I'm very impressed. Thank you, thank you. That's all I ever want to hear from you. <laughs> I had basically forgotten about Rune Factory, and then you were like, Nina, Rune Factory, and I'm like, maybe I should watch that <laughs> oh, you watched trailer. Oh, tra- that trailer again? I haven't yet, but okay. I'm probably going to. But the vibes are impeccable. 
I you never you played that you one. You never played. I before. played three and five. Yeah. And pos did I play part of two? I don't remember. I don't think so. I don't think so. Though you you could, I own them. <laughs> <laughs> I've bought I've bought them repeatedly. In fact, they're one of those games because I think I'm one of the few people who liked five. Um, I liked five. You liked five. I liked five. We have good taste. That's why we make a podcast. And because my drawing skills have not actually developed over time, if I was 16 or 26 and you asked me to draw a crow, it would have ended up looking pretty much like that. Blah, blah, blah. Yes, indeed. Go away.